That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Wow. Uh, Donald Trump held a press conference about an hour after we got off the air yesterday afternoon, and I just, I sat here with my mouth open. Just, I kept, you know, can he, can he, is he going to dig this hole deeper? And then I realized he didn't think he was digging a hole. That this is how this guy has been, presumably for the last two years, in the background. I mean, we're hearing from his, from people, you know, leaks coming out of the White House. That his senior staff is troubled by what he said, but it's consistent with what he's been saying in private. Which is amazing. Somebody, uh, you know, I, I, I posted a piece over on Alternet today uh, that, you know, just kind of gets into this, why the GOP sides with the Klan and the Nazis. And obviously, if you can't win on the issues, use racism. You know, if you're, you're running a scam on people and you need to bring a lot of rubes in to, to go along with the scam, because the whole point of the scam is to make billionaires rich and, and, and cut regulations on polluting corporations. If that's if that's what you're doing, then, you know, you need people to vote for you who don't realize that that's what you're doing, who think that you're there to defend the rights of the unborn or to or to uh, stop those those, you know, uh, brown and black people from taking your job. It bloody blah, you know, and, or, yeah, it's just I mean, this 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 game is so old and should be so obvious. Last night, Baltimore overnight, right? This was brilliant. Monday night, night before last, the Baltimore City Council said, okay, that's it. We've got four Confederate monuments left in this city. Let's get rid of them. They decided that Monday night, they took them down Tuesday night. They took them down last night. Didn't tell anybody, did no ceremony, no nothing. They simply took them down and they're melting them down. They're, they're destroying them. I suspect we're going to we're going to see a whole lot more of this. And by the way, for these guys who want to fetishize Robert E. Lee, Jonathan Horn wrote a great piece uh, over at uh, what is this? I think it's uh, Daily Beast, wasn't it? This I'm pretty sure. It's titled "Even Robert E. Lee Wanted the Confederate Flag Gone." Yes. Keep in mind, Robert E. Lee can surrendered to the Confederate Army of North Virginia in April of 1865. He went on to become the president of Washington College. And he, he took an oath to henceforth support the U.S. Constitution. And he also told all of his fellow Confederates that they should be doing the same thing. In fact, Jonathan Horn writes, the Confederate battle flags only arrived in the college chapel decades after Robert E. Lee's death. He did not want such divisive symbols following him to the grave. At his funeral in 1870, flags were notably absent from the procession. Former Confederate soldiers marching did not don their old military uniforms, and neither, you know, Lee was not buried in his Confederate military uniform. His daughter wrote his Confederate uniform would have been treason, perhaps. 
I mean, just consider that for a minute. Jonathan Hornwright, so sensitive, was Lee during his final years with extinguishing the fiery passions of the Civil War that he opposed erecting monuments on the battlefields where Southern soldiers under his command had fought against the Union. Robert E. Lee wrote, and I quote, I think it wiser, moreover, not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife and to commit to oblivion the feelings it engendered. You might want to let your, you know, the, <laughs> the next person you hear defending Donald Trump, you know, the, oh, Robert E. Lee, let them know that. So people are saying, well, what about, uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin and Gary Cohen and Eileen Chow, uh, who were standing behind Eric, uh, Donald Trump last night when he when he did the or yesterday afternoon when he did this uh, epic 20 uh, minute rant fight. You got to fight with the news media. And, you know, like like, you know, the crazy uncle. He's defending this stuff and and and, and, and attacking the anti-fascists. Which is bizarre. I mean, our country went to war to stop fascism. And Donald Trump is defending fascists? But anyhow, you've got Gary Cohn and, and, and Steve Mnuchin. You've got these, these Goldman Sachs guys standing there. And Elaine Chow, well, I don't, you know, she's, she's wealthy, but I, I don't know that she has a connection to Goldman Sachs. But, uh, you know, she's Mitch McConnell's wife also. And she was a, uh, a cabinet member, as I recall, in the Reagan administration. But um, what about Gary Cohn? What about these guys? Particularly, you know, it's, uh, pretty much the only minority group that is that is uh, represented that you know that has a uh, you know a reasonable number of people in the White House right now. Uh, Trump has pretty much gotten rid of all the people of color outside of Amarosa, and I'm not sure what she's doing. But uh, our our Jewish people, and you know, what's Gary Cohen doing? What man? I, I you know this is there. He's he's got to figure out, and not just Gary Cohen. I mean, but you know, okay, do we stay with the the fascist? bigot anti-Semite. I mean, keep in mind those, the, 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 the fascists who were marching were chanting, you know, uh, anti-Jewish slogans and blood and soil, which was Hitler's slogan, Blut und Erd, in the original German. So are they going to leave or not? I, you know, there's, there's this big push to, to say, okay, hey, you know, actually, you know, whether you're Jewish or not, if you're if you're just a, a human being, isn't it time to say no to this administration? You got five people now who have left his council on manufacturing, which was just a PR stunt to begin with. It's just like, you know, are you with the president or not? I am now of the opinion, and I, I tweeted this yesterday afternoon after I watched the press conference. I am now of the opinion that the Republican Party is going to impeach Donald Trump. Or they're going to put the put the steps into motion and he will resign just like Richard Dixon did, only he's going to resign claiming it as a great moral victory for him. And he's just going to go back to being a happy billionaire and leave that dump at the White House. And all they need is an excuse. And I've been suggesting that they've just been waiting for some small thing to come from Mueller's investigation. But frankly, they don't need that. They could impeach him right now on the emoluments clause. He has a hotel in Washington, D.C. that has a lease with, with, the, with the federal government. It's the old post office building. He does not own that building. He is leasing it for 99 years from the federal government. And the lease explicitly says that no elected official can benefit or or government employee can benefit from leasing this property. And Donald Trump still owns it and is benefiting from it. It's, it, it showed a profit last quarter. The most expensive hotel in Washington, D.C. now. They could impeach him for that. That is that is not only a high crime and misdemeanor, but it's a clear violation of the Constitution. 
So will they? We'll see. I mean, I, I think the Republicans very much kind of have their back to the wall right now. But it's, you know, so it's going to take a few months. I was saying yesterday afternoon, I think he'll be gone by Christmas. It may take longer. Things, it, sometimes it surprises me how long these things, I mean, you know, the Nixon, well, the Nixon impeachment took about a year. The Clinton, the Clinton impeachment took seven years. Although, you know, it was six years before they found something that they thought they could impeach him on. Bill Clinton, in retrospect, was squeaky, squeaky clean. I mean, this guy has such a trail. Trump has such a trail of things that. Okay. So there's that. Do you think that the Republican Party is going to is going to. You know, wake up and impeach him. I think that they're. You know, my point is, and the point of the article that I wrote over at Alternate, why the GOP sides with the Klan and the Nazis, is that the billionaires who are who who are who own the Republican Party right now don't care about civil rights by and large, don't care about the Klan, don't care about you know the, all this stuff is just a sideshow. They just want their damn tax cuts, and and the ones who are in the fossil fuel industry or the paper industry or other polluting industries, they just want to be able to dump their damn pollution in our air and water and not be fined for it and not be hassled by regulatory agencies. That's all they want. And they realize that they've got to suck up to the to the, you know, to the. To the Nazis <laughs> to get enough people to vote for them that they can hold political office or that their toadies can hold political office. I mean, what do you do? Do you do you do you, do you go out as, as a Republican and say, you know, vote for me because I'm going to cut taxes on billionaires. I'm going to deregulate poisoning industries. No, you don't. Instead, you say, oh, we've got to, you know, save the unborn and we've got to stop, you know, and, and oh, so the billionaires don't care. This thing is this this train is just rolling down the track here. And at some point, and I think it happened yesterday, the billionaires themselves are going to order that he be taken out. They're going to say to their their toadies in the Republican Party who are willing to even lie about science, like climate science. It's time for Donald to go, and then it's gonna happen. Not, no big public announcement, it'll just happen. Welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. See, the, the reason why the billionaires are not, you know, they are going to get rid of Trump is that they thought that he could hold it together the way that Nixon and Reagan did, and George W. Bush, for that matter. Although I'm, I, I'm not, I don't think that George W. Bush is a, a explicitly a racist. I mean, there's a, a fair amount of evidence that that you know clearly and soundly refutes that. But he certainly did not disavow the racist vote in 2000, and uh, so he was a little a little less awful on this. But Reagan and, and Nixon explicitly, clearly begged, essentially, for the racist, the white racist vote and got it. And then in public, pretended like nothing going, you know, there's no, no, here, here. Well, you know, and the billionaires who put Trump in, in place uh, and, and the rest of the Republican Party, by the way, the, the entire party owes its existence right now as a political force in this country to a couple of hundred billionaires and multimillionaires and a couple of hundred major corporations, you know, the Business Council, the Koch Network, uh, you know, Mercer, Shelley Adelson, all these guys. And at some point they're going to say, you know, he, he just, he can't hold it together the way Nixon and, and Reagan did. That's a problem. Okay. I was going to tell you about the city of Berkeley. I got this email from the mayor's office in the city of Berkeley, and I'm assuming it went out to a media list, and you know, I'm on all these media lists. The city of Berkeley has received many emails and calls about the impending August 27 white nationalist rally at Civic Center Park. We want to reiterate that the city has not approved this gathering. It is an event organized online. No one has tried to obtain a permit, nor has one been granted. This rally and its hateful rhetoric is not welcome in Berkeley. We are currently exploring all options. The city will keep residents informed as the date approaches. 
We urge residents to avoid the Martin Luther King Jr. Civic Center Park on this day. The best way to silence the white nationalists is by turning your back on their message. I think residents understand the extremely difficult position Berkeley finds itself in, made even more so by dealing with an amorphous group with no specific organizers. I want to reiterate, we will not allow our community to be terrorized by a small band of white supremacists whose ideology of hate is a losing one. Berkeley is proud of its multiculturalism and diversity, and we will continue to stand against those who want to divide us. Mara Berkeley. And did anybody notice that Saturday night, Jerry Drake Varnell tried to set off a half-ton bomb outside the bank first headquarters in Oklahoma City. This is, uh, he was trying, he was doing it as an homage to Tim McVeigh. Tim McVeigh did it because he read the Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries is a novel that was published back in the 1960s that, uh, you know, it's an end-of-the-world novel where, where uh, you know, a bunch of white people all across the United States just finally get fed up with, with the rise in power of people of color and, and, and gay people, and they just decide that's it. And uh, they, they kick off a race war, or they, the way that they kicked off this war was they bombed, they bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City, and the government's reaction to these right-wingers bombing the, the, the federal building in Oklahoma City was so radical the president in this book, in this book, The Turner Diaries, the president orders the confiscation of all guns in America, which immediately causes all the good white people to rise up against the people of color and the Jews and the Catholics and take them down. And in the end of the novel, you know, the, the, the country from sea to shining sea is drenched in the blood of people of color and the white Christian Protestants are the only ones left standing. And Tim McVeigh, of course, tried to bring that about. He blew up that bomb in Oklahoma City thinking that there would be this huge overreaction by the Clinton administration. And the, rea- and the result of that would be that, that you know, the, the good white people with guns would rise up. Now, nah, they're not rising up. They're, they're, they're carrying tiki torches and chanting about statues of dead traitors. They're not rising up. They're friggin' wimps. They're pathetic. But this guy, Jerry Drake Farnell, he tried to do this this last weekend. Has nobody noticed? I mean, can you imagine if a Muslim had tried to set off a half a ton bomb? We'll be back. My shaves were super frustrating before Harry's came along. I just didn't get that close shave and smooth glide that Harry's provides. I use Harry's because the best shave for me. And now Louise uses Harry's, too. She loves the smooth, close glide, too, on her legs. Harry's is a high-quality shave that's better for your face and your wallet. Great news. Harry's is so confident that you'll love their blades. They're giving you their set for free. Just cover the shipping. Your free trial set includes the ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, the rich lathering shave gel, and the travel blade cover. I've partnered with Harry's to bring you this incredible offer, and you can head over to harrys.com slash tom. That's T-H-O-M, Harry's with an S, harrys.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to get it now. Get started with Harry's today and get their free trial offer for free. All you cover is just a couple bucks in shipping. You get your free trial set, including a handle blade, shave gel, and travel blade cover. Go to harrys.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's harrys.com slash Tom. Don't wait. Get started with Harry's today. Tom Harbin here with you, and Michael Blake is on the line with us. He's the vice chair of the DNC. And he's also a state assemblyman from District 79 in the state of New York, Democrats.org, of course, the website for the DNC. Um, most interestingly, he's the author of, oh, where did I put it? Uh, ha, I'm sorry. Michael, welcome to the program. Oh, yeah, good, good to be with you. Uh, there's a few Michael Blakes. So I, I was wondering what were you going to say I authored right there. Yeah, okay. Did you, may, uh, did you not re- recently write a piece? Uh, maybe, I, maybe I missed that. Okay, so so what's the what's the uh, DNC's uh, response? Actually, I'm sorry, Michael, I, I mixed you up with with another guest I've got. But th- thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how how does the Democratic Party deal with this? This uh, you know Donald Trump going into full meltdown mode yesterday, or or full you know uh, Nazi fascist mode 
you know, racist, Nazi, fascist mode. You know, do we stand back and let, it, let him implode? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first and foremost, our, our thoughts and, and, and prayers continue to be um, with uh, Heather's family, um, which, as we know, the, the funeral that was happening um, on, on today and, and respect for their family in that aspect and also uh, for, for the two uh, Virginia State uh, troopers uh, who also had their lives lost as well. Uh, so let's, let's, let's put that in that context. Um, yesterday, we saw very clearly who Donald Trump is. And for anyone who has any confusion at all, uh, this is when you really have to ask yourself, uh, do you put party ahead of the people? Uh, you, you had a president who significantly and repeatedly doubled down uh, to actually try to create this absolute inaccurate false equivalent uh, that those that are pushing um, white nationalism and Nazi uh, Nazism and all that different uh, uh, absolutely discriminatory and inaccurate statements were equal to people that were standing up for justice and rights and equality and, and rejecting the Confederacy. Uh, so while, yes, we need to and will, as the Democratic Party, continue to push back uh, and say it is, un, it is intolerable, it is unacceptable, it is wrong, it is racist, it is discriminatory, we also are going to say, how do we mobilize from here? Uh, we put out a message from our chairman, Tom Perez, last night, rise and organize, uh, saying going into this weekend, which is our resistance summer weekend, and already was our resistance summer weekend as planned, we want people to organize in their communities, gather people, talk about the, the progressive agenda, talk about values that unite us as a, as a community, knock on doors, make phone calls. But this is an opportunity for us to unite and come together and mobilize. And so we're going to be very active. We're going to be very engaged. Uh, we will not at all sit silently by. Um, the words of Donald Trump are absolutely disgusting. Um, they're repugnant, and they will be rejected in every aspect by us. We're talking with Michael Blake, the vice chair of the DNC. Democrats.org is the website. You can tweet him at Mr. Michael Blake, Mr. Mike Blake, excuse me, Mr. Mike Blake, M-I-K-E-B-L-A-K-E, or at DNC. Um, Mike, I'm, I'm developing a theory on all this that, uh, in fact, I've got a piece up on alternate right now, uh, laying out my, my idea that, that basically the billionaires who own the modern Republican party and, and, um, I mean, own them to the point that virtually every elected Republican, at least at the federal level, um, is willing to, uh, simply deny science, you know, in service to the petro billionaires and the fossil fuel industry. Um, these guys own the Republican Party that they pro they must have thought as they were you know, working hard to get uh, Trump elected that he could like Nixon and Reagan before him shout out to the racists, get the racist vote. You know, the, the Republican Southern strategy is alive and well, but that he wouldn't be that, that like Nixon and Reagan, he would be smart enough to keep his his messages in, in you know, well coded so that the racists would know what he was saying, but nobody else would. Uh, Trump has completely abandoned any pretense of that. And I think that that's putting the billionaires who own the Republican Party in a real tough situation. And that the, the as soon as Robert Mueller offers them some small reason to impeach him, I'm guessing the Republican Party is going to turn on him. Um, in the meantime, it seems like, A, there's a clear violation of the Emoluments Clause with his ownership of the uh, Washington, D.C. hotel here. Uh, I mean, it's just so blatant. It's mind boggling. And and also, you know, supporting Nazis that we successfully won World War Two against supporting Nazis is arguably, you know, support for for uh, for an insurrection as support for sedition. And I believe that that's grounds for impeachment. Um, your thoughts on all of that? So I think first, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Bob Mueller is pursuing his investigation. And, and, and as we saw, even from last week. Uh, the, the raid that happened at Paul Manafort's home, the continued request for documents at the White House. That investigation will continue, and, and, and it, it has been clear and obvious and continual um, of, the, of the lies and complete inaccuracies that have come out of Trump and their entire team um, on that, and, and that will continue in its own right. Uh, but when we think about um, the last four to five days, uh, let, let's make sure we, we appreciate this. Donald Trump yesterday repeatedly said, that the reason why he could not call out white nationalism and, and neo-Nazis is because he wanted to wait for the facts. This is someone who repeatedly puts out tweets that are inaccurate, repeatedly makes statements that are blatant lies, waits not at all, even when his team tries to walk back those comments. So when you think about this, he had a chance on his first statement, his second statement, 
And then the first tweet that came out after those statements that was communicating uh, uh, their feelings uh, wasn't even about the, the young woman that lost her life. Uh, and so, and, and he clearly had to be pushed to be able to communicate the language uh, of it being uh, uh, neo-Nazism and, and white nationalism. But yesterday, further doubled down on that. And so I think we're in a space now where Republicans, especially in the House, have to make a decision. Is this purely about party and you winning an election or doing what's right for the country? It is not enough to just say what he did is wrong. It is hurtful. It is discriminatory. It is disgusting. It is unfitting of the presidency. And so you have to make a clear decision. If you still work in the administration, you are accepting of this language. If you are supportive of Donald Trump, you are accepting of this language. You can't say in a tweet what he said is wrong, but then continue to support the agenda of this. It doesn't work that way in any aspect. And when we take it further, Tom, we can't just ignore it and make it one isolated aspect. This is someone who has used this kind of absolutely demonstrative, disgusting rhetoric against pretty much all communities across the board. But yet when it comes to those that attacked us and in all aspects, whether it be the Confederacy and those uh, and neo-Nazis, he is silent on the issue. And so there's plenty of room um, to, cook, to pursue and, and move forward. And I think, again, Mueller and others will, will make that determination. But what we have to do is be simultaneously clear of why we want people to be voting and engaging for us uh, and, and seeing the clear direction that is coming from us and why we say a better deal, you know, hashtag a better deal, the messaging that we're framing out. Because we want to talk about how we're fighting for jobs for everyone, how we're fighting for equality and equity for everyone, how we're fighting for better schools for everyone, and how we're going to make sure that no matter what your community may be, whether if you're Jewish, you're Muslim, you're Christian, you're black, you're Latino, you're Asian, you're Native American, you're gay, you're straight, wherever you may be, that you have a place within our party and you have a place in this country. And no matter what Donald Trump says, we welcome you, we love you, we embrace you, we reject his language, but it's time for us not just to reject it, but to rebuild upon it. Yeah, very, very well said. Michael Blake, the vice chair of the DNC, uh, also the New York State Assemblyman, District 79, Democrats.org, the website. You can tweet him at Mr. Mike Blake, M-R-M-I-K-E-B-L-A-K-E, or at DNC. Michael Blake, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be with you, Tom. And for everyone that wants to get involved, go to resistsummer.com. You can see how you can get involved this weekend if you want to unite in all that we're trying to do in the midst of what we're seeing. Great. Thank you. And welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club, Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson, who was a guest on our program a while back. Uh, this is from page 86. One of the great privileges of whiteness is not to see color, not to see race, and not to pay a price for ignoring it, except, of course, when you're called on it. But even then, the price pales quite literally in comparison to the high-priced black folk pay for being black. We pay a price, too, for not even being able to derive recognition and financial reward for the styles that make the world want to be black so bad that they don't mind looking like us as long as they never, ever have to be us. If the appropriators can freely rip off our culture with no consequences, those who revise racial history, the fourth stage of white gr racial grief, are even less accountable for their deeds. The way of the racial revisionist when it comes to black life and history is simply to rewrite it. Their motto is, it didn't happen that way. There's a flood of writing that tells us that the Civil War wasn't really about slavery, but about an effort to defend states' rights. But, my friend, you've got to put yourself in our place and see the absurdity of such a claim. Defend the rights of states to do what? To enslave blacks. But even here, the irresistible logic of whiteness that is irresistible to whites themselves and to all of us who are subjected to white whim springs into full action. White American history is so powerful that even when it loses, it wins, at least in skirmishes within whiteness itself. From the right wing, there is the belief that the Civil War was fought over the ability of individual states to beat back a federal government out to impose its will. From the left wing, there's the belief that the Civil War was a conflict between the planter class and the proletariat. In each case, race as the main reason for the war is skillfully rewritten, or really written out. Slavery is rewritten, too. Some white Christian apologists contend that black folk needed slavery to save their souls or to rescue their cultures. 
A contemporary twist on this argument radiates in thinkers like Dinesh D'Souza, who claims that American blacks brought here through slavery are now doing far better than their African kin. Some white critics argue that since blacks sold other blacks into slavery, bondage was a black man's problem, not a white man's burden. But revisionists would much rather describe the dehumanization of black folk as little more than a commercial transaction. It's another way of washing their hands of racial responsibility. The effort to rewrite history surfaces in how Malcolm X is treated in the mainstream. It hardly seems likely that the culture he fought with all his heart could be depended on to grasp his true meaning. Malcolm is often read as an apostle of violence, as a frightful figure consumed by destructive rage. Yet the truth is far more complex, and Malcolm was far more complicated. But isn't the autobiography of Malcolm X so enduringly appealing because it shows Malcolm giving up hatred as a means to racial justice? Now, Malcolm X believed in the liberation of black folk from the mental and psychological chains of white supremacy. He was not committed to nonviolence as a way of life or as a method of social strategy. He believed that such a commitment prevents the full realization of black emancipation. Yet he was not personally violent. As Ossie Davis says in his eulogy, responding to the claim that Malcolm preached hate and was a fanatic and a racist, quote, did you even talk to Brother Malcolm? Was he ever uh, himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? End quote. The rage that flowed in Malcolm's veins was the rage against a force of whiteness that aimed to wash its black kin from the face of the earth. The urge to rewrite black history occasionally gives way to the final stage of white racial grief, which is simply, when it comes to race, dilute it. That is, to argue that black stuff doesn't just plague black folk. To summarize, bad stuff happens to everyone. This argument surfaced in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and that storm certainly hit black folk, but it hit white folk too. This is the sordid version of reverse American exceptionalism. It is the same Me Too impulse that flares in the bitter battle against affirmative action. Beloved, I can't help but notice that affirmative action is the bee in so many of your bonnets. You look around in your classrooms and you think every black person is there because they got an unfair shake from the system. You look at your job and you think that your black coworker got an unjust nod of approval from the powers that be. You never stop to think how the history of whiteness in America is one long scroll of affirmative action. You never stop to think that Babe Ruth never had to play the greatest players of his generation, just the greatest white players. You never stop to think that most of our presidents never rose to the top because they bested the competition, just the white competition. White privilege is a self-selecting tool that keeps you from having to compete with the best. The history of white folk gaining access to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale is the history of white folk deciding ahead of the game that you are superior. You argue that slots in school should be reserved for your kin because, after all, they are smarter, more disciplined, better suited, and more deserving than inferior blacks. That's like concluding that the Cleveland Cavaliers can't possibly win the NBA championship because they're down three games to one to the Golden State Warriors. Throw in the towel and call it a series. But they must play the series to determine the winner. Whiteness is having all the advantages on your side. The referee's blowing the whistle for you. The arena packed with only your fans. In fact, whiteness means you never even have to play the game at all, at least not in head-to-head matchups with the talent and skill of black folks. Here's We Cannot Stop by Michael Eric Dyson. Welcome back. Let's, uh, let's remember that until uh, Birth of a Nation came out, uh, the first feature-length uh, silent film, it was the, really the first major feature-length movie in the history of the United States, and it was a recruiting tool for the Ku Klux Klan. And it came out in the 19-teens, I forget which year, but it was you know in the first decade or two of the 20th century. And when it came out, the Klan was pretty much gone at that point. I mean, they kind of, you know, they reemerged during early Reconstruction, but by that time. But, but when that came out, there was this huge revival in Klan activity. And then the previous spike in Klan activity had been in 1898 when, when uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was decided by the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court uh, made a new law, which, by the way, the Constitution does not give them the power to do, that, uh, you know, the whole separate but equal thing, that, that there would be, you know, we would live in an apartheid country. We, you know, the United States of America was an apartheid country, arguably from its founding right up until 1954 or 1965, uh, your choice of milestones, and to some extent still is. 
But that was, you know, that and and uh, so that's why all these statues got populated all over the United States in these two bursts, one around 1898 and the other around 1915, because, you know, Birth of the Nation, which, by the way, if you haven't watched it, if you, uh, you know, regardless of you know what ethnic group you're a member of or race or whatever it may be, uh, it is a movie that. If you want to understand the history of the Klan, the, this, this movie is not an accurate portrayal of history. It is a complete reinvention of history. And it, it is the, the, the very worst stereotypes out there. And it's, it was played in the White House by Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic president of the United States, the guy who kicked off the whole eugenics movement in the United States. I mean, this is a... a Terrible, terrible period in our history. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah how you doing, Moss? I'm well. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I just wanted to say about, you know, uh, how we fought a war, uh, a World War II during World War, and nearly, uh, if not, not mistaken, some 50 million people died to get rid of Nazism and uh, fascism. Uh, from uh, Germany, Europe, uh, and the rest of the world, and somehow, and yet, because of what we call free speech, we allow it here. We have to uh, understand that there's free speech, and then that there's hate speech. Because if it doesn't, um, you know, if there is such thing as free speech, then there are different levels of free speech, and one of them is hate. And what these uh, uh, people from uh, the Nazism and fascism uh, uh, holding these uh, rallies here in America who, who fought uh, this type of uh, war on, on both sides of the world. I mean, we were fighting. We had two fronts going, the only country who could do that. And we were fighting fascism and Nazism. And yet now our country is being treated here. Our, our own president is back in these type of people. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. Theresa May, the prime minister of England, uh, that big headline at the top of Financial Times this morning, Theresa May comes out, you know, and speaks out against against Trump. Uh, it's it's, uh, you know, and they're both conservatives. Uh, I, although I'm not sure that you could call Trump. a am not sure you can call Trump anything other than a sociopath. Um, main excellent points all. Thank you so much. It's always nice to hear from you. Dion in Round Lake, Illinois. Hey, Dion, what's up? Yes, I heard uh, Heather Heyer's mother this morning. She said that they tried to kill my child to shut her up. And then I agree with uh, Richard Painter, the American lawyer. That he believes that the American government has been infiltrated by white supremacists. And, uh, what infiltrated? Our uh, president is a white supremacist. Dion? He's a white supremacist, and so is most of his cabinet and staff. So uh, what safeguards are in place uh, so you can prevent that? And uh, what can we do so they don't shut us up? Oh, it's it is. It, this is this thing has gone around the bend. I mean, this it has gotten so, so, uh, so totally bizarre that, for example, you know, this uh, and, and 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 thank you for the call, Dion. Um, check out this article. This is from actually from August 11th in the New York Times. Scott Pruitt is carrying out his EPA agenda in secret. It's by Carol Davenport and Eric Lipton. When career employees of the EPA are summoned to a meeting with the agency's administrator, Scott Pruitt at agency headquarters, they can no longer count on easy access to the floor where his office is. Doors to the floor are locked. Employees have to have to have an escort to gain entrance. Some employees say they are told to leave behind their cell phones when they meet with Drew Pruitt told not to take notes. Pruitt, according to employees who requested anonymity out of fear of losing their jobs, often makes important phone calls from other offices rather than using the phone in his office. That would probably be when he's talking to the industries that own him or the billionaires who own him, and he can't do that on, on public property or, you know, I don't know. And he's accompanied even at EPA headquarters by armed guards, the first head of the agency to ever request round-the-clock security. Why? Because he's taking apart the EPA at the behest of the of the of the polluting billionaires 
His, his aides recently asked career employees to make major changes in a rule regulating water quality in the United States without any records of the changes they were being ordered to make. And the EPA under Mr. Pruitt has moved to curb certain public information, shutting down data collection uh, on emissions from oil and gas companies, taking down 1,900 agency web pages. This is how bad it's gotten. Hey, it's Tom Hartman here with the Tom Hartman Program. You know I'm serious about my health, and so I'm doing something for it. You've heard me talking about Super Beats. I'm drinking Super Beats, a circulation superfood powder that helps support my heart and healthy blood pressure, too. I have amazing energy and amazing stamina as well. The New York Times calls Beats fitness in a glass. With Super Beats, I get all the benefits without the bad taste or added sugar. Mix it in with water or a smoothie for a jitter-free energy boost. You'll love the taste of Super Beats and feel results in as little as 20 minutes. Guaranteed to your money back. Try the original berry or black cherry. I like them both. If you haven't tried it yet, now is the time. Only for the summer. You can try Super Beats for only $5.95. Here's how. Call now and get a free box of Super Beats with 10 packets to try and feel the results, plus two free indicator strips for monitoring your nitric oxide levels before and after taking Super Beats. It's just $5.95, and you'll love the results. Guaranteed. More energy, more stamina, uh, support healthy circulation. What are you waiting for? Call 800-568-9889. That's 800-568-9889. Or go to TomsBeats.com. That's TomsBeats.com. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And on the line with us is Mark Bray, historian, organizer, author of several books, including his latest Antifa, or Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. Uh, you, can find it, uh, you can find it also at markmbray.wordpress.com. And you can tweet Ron, uh, Mark at Mark underscore Bray, B-R-A-Y. Mark, two welcome to the program. Two underscores. Two Thanks underscores. <laughs> oh, two underscores. Yeah, it did look a little long. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Mark underscore underscore Bray. Um, so, first of all, I've heard Antifa and Antifa. What is it? Antifa. So, if, if, if any of your listeners speak Spanish, for example, Antifascismo, Antifa. It's uh, how it be pronounced in many European languages. That's how the Europeans pronounce it, Antifa. Ah, okay. But how do Americans pronounce it? Oh, well, Americans have been doing a poor job. But if you want to say it how the people who are part of it pronounce it, that's But the Germans would be saying Antifa, right? Uh, well, the point is that the emphasis is on the beginning. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, tell us about where this, uh, the, the anti-fascist movement came from. Uh, its history is uh, grounded in the early 20th century, is it not? Of course, right. So um, fascism was a school of thought grounded in physical violence, in crushing one's political opponents, and would not respond to rational discourse, would, would not you know, take, uh, take into account all the kind of uh, uh, senses of personal liberties that society had. So it started running roughshod over Italian and German society, and a number of predominantly socialist, communists, and anarchists started to form self-defense groups to defend themselves against fascists, uh, one of the more notable examples of early 20th century anti-fascism can be seen in the Spanish Civil War, when the international brigades came from dozens of countries around the world to stand up against Franco and his fascist allies. Um, today's modern uh, modern militant Antifa can be really dated to uh, Britain in the in 1970s, when um, uh, anti-fascist groups started organizing against xenophobic backlashes against predominantly Caribbean and South Asian migration to the U.K., as well as Germany in the 80s among the autonomous movement, when especially the fall of the Berlin Wall really uh, unleashed a, a violent neo-Nazi backlash uh, targeting predominantly Turkish migrants. So you, you have these two uh, movements that were very strong, and they started to burst other movements around Europe, North America, and elsewhere. Uh, in the U.S., anti-racist action in the 80s through to the 2000s was the equivalent. And today, since the Trump uh, campaign, Anti-fascism, Antifa, has been a sort of a model that uh, a lot of uh, radical leftists have turned to as a way to, to defend themselves and to fight back against the alt-right. So the, the, uh, basically the agenda of the anti-fascist movement is not so much uh, a positive message as it is a defensive message. It's not saying, you know, we, we want health care for everybody. It's we want to stop these crazy people from ruining our society. Well, I mean, the, the people who compose these groups, of course, are also leftists who have a positive agenda of social transformation. But right. in, the, in the context of Antifa, the thing that brings them together is this specific task. Right. And, and uh, what, what is the state of this movement right now in the United States? And what's the state of the fascist movement for that? 
Right. Well, um, unfortunately, the alt-right, which, of course, is a mask to to really cover up white supremacists, neo-Nazis and fascists, grew uh, to alarming levels with the, the uh, President Trump campaign, his his election and his uh, the degree to which he's emboldened them evident yesterday in his comments that there were plenty of good people at the neo-Nazi event. And so Didn't a lot of this start with birtherism. I mean, you know, with well, with just, okay, you know, can, white backlash to a black that. president. Of course. And also, uh, I've spoken to some experts who also cite the Minutemen in the mid 2000s in responses to migration. So you can you can. Oh, yeah. And I remember the Minutemen in the 1960s, too. They were big. Sure. Right. So in a certain sense, we can always go back farther. Um, But when we look at the Antifa movement, for example, there was a bit of a lull from the mid 2000s into the early 20 teens in terms of that kind of organizing. But it's picked up dramatically since the start of the Trump campaign with a lot of new groups around the country starting over the past year. Wow. So uh, there's no there's no like central headquarters for the anti-fascist movement. Well, for example, there's the Torch Antifa Network, uh, which about, I think, 12 to 14 anti-fascist groups are networked in that. If people Google Torch Antifa, you can see the groups that are part of it and what they're all about. But a lot of other ones are, are individual and autonomous and, and organized on their own. So generally, it's sort of a networked politics. There is no Antifa central command. Anyone can start their own group to try to monitor and resist local white supremacists. Yeah, it's uh, it's just a remarkable time. And is there I've noticed all this all this uh, iconography that uh, was on Mm. display Saturday in Charlottesville. Uh, Many of these symbols, things that I'm I've never seen before. Is there are there new like subgroups erupting and and. And, and apropos of that, I had somebody call the, a little while ago asking if the, you know, the circled thumb, thumb and forefinger and then three, uh, three uh, uh, other fingers being up was a sign of white power or not. There's people saying it is. There's a bunch of guys who've been taking their picture, doing that symbol in front of, you know, at the White House. Uh, and then there's other people saying, no, it's just a hoax that 4chan created. But on the other hand, if they think that it means white power, then doesn't it mean white power? And what's the deal? What's going on here? Yeah, yeah. Well, as far as the latter comment, if they think it means white power and they're doing it in this context where they're white supremacists, it means white power. If you spell a WP with your fingers and take a picture, it means white power. As far as the the left symbols, some of the more common ones are a double flag, often one being red, one being black, which originally dates back to the anti-fascist action groups of Germany of the early 30s but was revived in Germany in the 80s and 90s. Another is three arrows pointing downward and to the side, which uh, originated with the Iron Front against fascism once again in Germany and has been revived subsequently. So that shows the kind of historical continuity that anti-fascists see with their struggle over time. It's remarkable. The book is uh, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook by Mark Bray, a comprehensive history of the anti-fascist movement and a handbook to its fight against the alt-right today. Uh, it's coming out next week, right? That's right. That's And so I'm assuming, presumably available in, you know, uh, booksellers all over and, you know, Amazon yep. and whatnot. You can order it online. It should come pretty soon. Great. Uh, markmbray.wordpress.com, the website, mark underscore underscore bray, two underscores. You can tweet him. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Angelo in Downers Grove, Illinois. Hey, Angelo, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom, or good afternoon. Uh, One comment that I told your screener is the fact that everybody seems to agree, even the most conservative, how atrocious and how horrible the Nazis are. But they draw an equivalence to people that actually oppose them. I mean, if if they're willing to say that the Nazis are bad, where were they? Who are they, you know, to say that this is a tennis match of two equal powers? Evil is evil, and evil should be opposed. Okay, the vice uh, segment that I saw, the Nazis were charging that these are our streets. And, you know, Tom, you're a student of history. If you control the streets, you control the political discourse. And, and uh, the Tea Party... Proved that back in 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 a, you know eighty years ago. So somebody has to oppose them. Somebody has to take a position. I like to you know show my gratitude to the young people that actually risk their lives by by and one lost her life, and one did lose their lives. 
And also, the, you know, the argument was, well, they were expressing their First Amendment rights. I'm sorry, if you, somebody were to read the First Amendment, it also says to peaceably assemble to redress grievances. When you carry a weapon to a demonstration, you are not peaceably assembled. That, that, that right went away the moment they showed up with guns, and the police should have some, done something about that. So that's my argument. And, and again, it's, it's a really just shame. I'm in my mid-60s. I wish I was young enough to have been there. And maybe, you know, I will take it upon myself to be there on the street to oppose these thugs. That's all I have to say. Tom. Yeah. Okay. Angelo, thank you very much. Oh, 40 seconds. Okay. Uh, let's try Jared. Jared in Downingston, Pennsylvania. Jared, we got a little less than a minute. You got a quick one? Oh, sorry about that, Tom. I was just with somebody. Um, yeah, I think um, uh, Trump, uh, I mean, uh, the CEOs are leaving. I think he's probably going to be impeached soon. Um, like, um, how, how, how did this guy become our president? Like, like By virtue of the, of the, uh, uh, the Electoral College. I mean, you know, it was an institution that was created to, to give slave states more power. Why? I mean, it was it was the 16 million people who voted for him. I mean, he's, I mean, he. Well, he you know he lost the election by three million votes. He's the popular vote loser, just like George W. Bush was. Uh, but you know, we've got this this institution that that goes back to when the southern states, you know, large chunks of their population were African American, and they could only be counted as three fifths of a person, but none of them could vote, and and you know, thus Republicans for president. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.